Welcome to Untitled Investment Talks, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome back. Thank you for being here again. My name, as always, is Simon. I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Carl Michael, also from Untitled Investment Expertise. And today we have a very special guest um, with us. Markets are going crazy. The news are compounding and compounding. Narratives keep changing. And for that purpose, today, Heiss from Coinstone Capital is joining us. Heiss, great having you. Uh, yeah, thank you, Simon. Yeah, I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Now, maybe not all of our listeners know you already, so you can give a quick intro about who you are and where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as you probably noticed from the accent already, I'm South African, but I've been in the Netherlands for the past eight years. Um, my blockchain journey started when I was an SAP consultant at a big chemicals company at a certain point. That was back in 2013. And I was working as a, well, you can almost say data laborer, making sure that siloed data was kind of like flowing in the organization. And that's when you really started noticing the, the problems with the loss of progress or the loss of possibilities that happen if data doesn't flow, but if it's actually siloed and the large amount of work that you need to do to keep it flowing. And then at that time, my flatmate actually mentioned blockchain technology to me. And based on the fact that I was working in like the trenches with regards to data, uh, it made instant sense to me. And I got excited about it for the same reason that I'm still excited about it. And then from then on, I basically decided my career needs to go into the blockchain directions. I joined a company called InnoPay in Amsterdam, where I was a payments consultant, did some stuff for the European Banking Association at that time on what you could do with crypto assets, um, and got a lot of broad exposure to logistics and blockchain, insurance and blockchain, especially payments and blockchain as well. I enjoy the consulting a lot. It's a perfect job, but I always enjoyed the trading aspect of it as well. So from then on, I'm a partner Gunther Ulleral, and we started Coinstone Capital like three years ago. Our initial focus was on being a fund in the classic sense, focused on crypto assets, especially with the investment thesis on how tokenization can basically power platform business models. Over time, that it actually makes my work more sense because um, for to actually just provide investment advisory. So actually to provide um, clients and customers with advice on how to basically best invest their own assets. And in that way, they keep control of the assets. But And we don't have to charge performance fees and these types of things. But what we do, which is beneficial for them, is that they get the, the benefit of our experience with regards to picking um, assets and also basically giving them a structure to apply best practice, best investment practice to their investments as well. So you get the benefit of fund without the costs and you still have the liquidity. So if anything pops up and you need the money as quickly as possible, you can just take it off your exchange account as you please. So that's what Coinstone Capital does in that regard. And then obviously we trade our own proprietary fund as well. And so that keeps me nice and sharp. 
as well, which is very important. Cool. Um, I think especially these days, the last uh, seven days, 13% increase in Bitcoin. Before we had this DeFi rally, we see publicly traded companies building uh, Bitcoin uh, cash reserves. Yesterday, PayPal announced that you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies, at least US uh, um, customers can do. So, I mean, it's great times for your services. I saw on your website that your advisory is, is built on uh, something what you call a model portfolio. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Give our listeners a little bit more insights, what you do with your model portfolio and how it is structured? Yeah, basically the goal of the model portfolio is allowing people for the first time to benefit from also portfolio management. How you build up a proper um, position in, in the crypto markets goes from top to bottom in the sense of where you buy. So we make sure that, it, firstly, it's what you buy, right? We help in that decision as well, of course. And then from then on, there's the aspect of for which price. And so then we use dollar cost averaging to allow people to get into a proper average position over time, over, over the course of maybe of, of six months, but in some cases even a year. In that way, they have a good average position, which they can then keep on the long term. And then on top of that, there's the portfolio part of it as well, where certain assets, it's not like if we do 15 assets, we just basically do 6.5% per asset. Because within the portfolio, you can look at all types of volatility-related indicators. And if you build that portfolio out of the correct percentages, help you through shocks, for instance. So what we can see in the market at the moment, Bitcoin is pulling, and there's a little bit of movement from, even though the most altcoins are still in the green, you can expect that there's going to be a movement from the altcoin money into Bitcoin as well. And then if, you, if your portfolio is set up in such a way that, that there's enough Bitcoin in it to start out with, then you don't suffer a, draw, a big drawdown based on the fact that there's this market. The, these portfolios, are they like tailored? I mean, you have different classes of, or let's say, investors you're working for, from retail to institutional investors. Do you have selective portfolios per segment or even are they individually tailored? based on risk averseness or alpha people want to get? How does it go? Yeah, we, it's usually we'll have a discussion based on risk yeah, and why you are in the industry, why you want to get involved in crypto assets. And it's very, very interesting, Carl, that so many people go into um, crypto asset investments for completely different reasons. Some people simply don't believe in, in in fiat currency anymore. And so they just basically want to place some of their savings into, into a, a, a crypto assets. Then on the other end, a lot of people see it as, okay, I already have a portfolio of real estate, of commodities, of private equity, and I'm looking for a new asset class. Can you help me in that regard? And then based on that, the, the timeframes and the risk aversion changes a lot. But what we do have are basically internally managed baskets which we look at and monitor on a consistent basis. And then eventually we put them together on a percentage basis to make sure that the risk um, profile is optimized in that regard within their personal portfolios. If I get it correctly, your investment strategy is nothing to do with the, call it day trading, but more 
for investors with a long-term horizon. Is this correct? Yes, that's definitely the case. It's more about people who they want the benefit of making sure that, that their hard-earned money is put away in the smartest way possible, in the most optimized way possible, and also not dragging too much of their time um, away. So this is the advantage of it. We would basically say, listen, here, this is built out for the long term. And you basically make the allocations yourself on your exchange account. And then you basically forget about it for as long as you like. It takes a lot of work away. Let's put it this way. That's a clear value proposition. Absolutely obvious, let's say, for Bitcoin, Ethereum. If we'll have developments like what we saw in the last three months, especially in DeFi, where out of nothing, certain coins popped up, got whatever kind of extreme valuations, even if we look at AVE, um, if we look at uh, Compound or a Uniswap of the other DeFi assets. How do you handle timing to be in the market at the right time, even considering that you go for a long-term strategy? Yeah, the, the nice thing about it is what we do is we've got a use case-based focus, which is we have long antennas out there in the market looking at, okay, where are the weak signals? What is interesting already? Um, are these weak signals in some way representative of a theme? And then usually this theme would then crystallize out into what we refer to as, as a broad use case. And then within the use case, there are applications. So you can say DeFi is a use case that was identified. Then you've got the applications themselves, different applications within the use case. Like for instance, in decentralized exchange, you name it, aggregation, these types of things. And then you look at based of breed. And the best of breed is basically the projects that look like they are showing the most network effect at the moment and showing some form of moat and some form of strength in this regard. So for instance, we would be interested in investing in Uniswap for a certain, for a certain, in a certain aspect, but we would not go into sushi at all, just based on the fact that, that we feel that's just a misuse of the of the staking mechanism and the fundraising mechanism, um, which is not something that we advise our investors to get to get in, to get hold of. So that's that's how we approach that issue. Do you have a kind of rule how much you allocate for such a specific subject, be it uh, DeFi, for example, compared to let's say uh, the the Bitcoin and Ethereum core share in your portfolio? Uh, you work at you work at top to bottom. It's like you, your Bitcoin Ethereum part of the portfolio needs to be relatively high to start out with. It depends on the client themselves and their risk aversion, but it would be kind of like a minimum of thirty percent. You can go high, as high as sixty, and then that basically needs a certain a certain amount um, for other use cases, and then. Within that amount that is left for the use cases, you have to look at the ones that are already there and very, very interesting, like enablers, and then basically move on to what's next and what's interesting. So then obviously you basically look at what's left in the sense of like, okay, this near DeFi is crystallized out in a certain way. There are a few kind of like, well, between brackets DeFi blue chips that you can look out for, but my feelers are already telling me that data is the next level at the moment and i need to give make sure that my clients also get exposure to those 
So that's also then a part of that where you can make a 5%, 10% allocation. There is uh, like a lot of science based on volatility and indicators, but then at a certain point, there's a little bit of art in as well at the end. Cool. I think we have some more questions, especially for DeFi. Maybe Simon, uh, you're going to take over here. Yeah, I mean, as we're already on the topic of DeFi, which of course is not so recent, but its popularity is quite recent with changes in infrastructure, especially, uh, let's say, the transition to Ethereum 2.0 and hopefully severe decrease in network fees. And with that, of course, way more decentralized finance application becoming viable since right now for many uh, applications like Augur, like maybe even Synthetics, fees on Ethereum, of course, a huge part in considering how to interact or if to interact. How do you see the market changing? Maybe new paradigms, paradigms shifting, or just in general value development of the DeFi market with infrastructure changes? That's quite a multifaceted question. So let's target the DeFi aspect of it first. Bitcoin, for instance, would be the first application of like a very, very basic economy, like a means, some form of token to basically transfer value. Then we saw with ICOs, we saw with the use of smart contracting technology, we saw the application of, okay, listen here, you can exchange certain tokens for other tokens and basically fund something and then get a project going, which is already actually an immense achievement, even though it got misused relatively badly or very badly. We've now seen with DeFi is like we've seen the, the like this kind of like decentralized economy being built out with more functionalities where it comes to not only decentralized exchanges, but also basic financial primitives like uh, like lending and borrowing happening as well. So this is a step up. This is an advancement. You know, human beings are very, very confusing. But one thing which we tend to do, which is good, is not turn our back on progress. And the progress that we've seen now with DeFi, not only from the financial primitive sites, but also with regards to using the staking mechanism to let the whole tokenized infrastructure basically come full circle in the sense that you can now be part of the success of a network and a network that's been properly kind of like monetized and shared with people. That's the main achievement. And we shouldn't, just because the prices fluctuate a little bit, we should definitely not see that as any form of failure. So that's the that's the DeFi part. So I'm very, so let's put it this way. The progress that's been made in the short space is, has been immense. And the toolbox that it gives for future innovators has is, is, is really expanded uh, over the past few years. If you look at decentralized technology. But of course, another aspect of the question is the whole with regards to scalability and layer two and these types of things. Um, yes, it is held, being held back by fees and all these types of things, but Ethereum is, well, Ethereum has got the network effect at the moment, right? And they will have that mode for a very, very long time. So people are kind of like hoping and hanging on that they can just do what they need to do. That also explains why we haven't seen a lot of layer two possibilities yet. And we haven't seen uh, layer two um, solutions yet, a lot of projects, not necessarily actually getting real traction in the market either. The ball is firmly in Ethereum's court at the moment, and the opportunity is 
people very much there. So with regards to getting the scalability right and making sure that it becomes a little bit more representative and, and makes more applications possible or financially feasible, let's put it this way. So with all of that said, would you expect uh, fundamental changes to happen as soon as Ethereum shifts to Ethereum 2.0? Since, as you mentioned, the vast majority of everything decentralized finance right now is happening on Ethereum. But like as someone who's used Uniswap a couple of times, of course, one of the big parts of the calculation, whether you want to participate in any liquidity money is always how much does it actually cost in Ethereum fees? How do you estimate or gauge the impact uh, of Ethereum 2.0 when it hits? Well, there's there's two impacts that are firstly going to make it. So what we've seen with, with, with IPOs actually as well before and with DeFi and with CryptoKitties even, like many of these things become too popular for the capacity of the network or the fee structure of the network. And then all of a sudden people are very, very enthusiastic. And then all of a sudden people notice like, okay, this transaction is going to cost me 90 euros. Then, of course, they're not interested anymore. And then this lack of interest then leads to the project eventually dying down. The situation is solved. Yeah? Then, oh, well, then you're basically going to see that, that the projects themselves will be able to kind of like really, really grow as soon as there's this enthusiasm. So there won't be this kind of like glass ceiling on top of the success of the projects themselves with regards to enthusiasm generated from people and being able to deliver on it. That's one aspect. You can do many of the functionalities with on, on DeFi. You can technically speaking go and do it with your bank or you can actually technically speaking go and do it with your friends. Why would you want to go and do that in a decentralized way? Um, apart from that, decentralization is, is cool. <laughs> the biggest aspect in that regard is the fact is that these things can become the substrate, the fundamental settlement infrastructure of completely new automated markets that simply just don't exist anymore. Yeah? Um, I've pointed it to before, data, for instance. If you go and take data and you apply it to a scalable DeFi infrastructure, where you can lend, borrow, and even subdivide easily for people, and then make a market out of that between people and our corporations and things and, and in that regard. It, it sets off a completely new way of doing things, which would be very interesting. So yes, to answer your question, if this gets going, then the sky is truly the limit with regards to, then it's only the imagination holding us back, actually. This, that's a very good take, I think. I mean, since you mentioned it, uh, that of course there are alternatives, even without Ethereum 2.0, there are things we can do. Layer 2 solutions, applications, and of course, Since DeFi is very popular, as you mentioned with CryptoKitties and so on, if there's interest and fees are too high, people will find workarounds. They will figure out uh, what to do. So what do you think will be the role of layer two applications in the future? Maybe also the combination of off-chain and on-chain settlement, the work sharing between what should actually be on-chain, what can be done off-chain. What do you think about layer two solutions and applications in the short to medium term? Yeah, in, the sh in the short term at the moment, there's two aspects that pop up to me. For Firstly, like I really maybe prove me wrong from your perspective, but I haven't seen existing projects say, okay, listen, you're, we are now integrating this layer two solution to make something happen. 
per se. I haven't seen it like it like on mass. I've heard stories of like okay, there's been a joint press conference, but I've never dealt with 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 something myself. Whereas it's like well, okay, this is now scalable based on this. You know, there are interesting projects like XDI, for instance, which people have spoken about a lot, but Yet again, there's the there's the user aspect of it, and then secondly, it's also a little bit with regards to the commercial viability of these scaling solutions, because they are in the whole value stack of how the value flows. I get the idea it's going to be very very difficult to do some form of value aggregation at that level. Because I can see it on the, I can see that there would be fees paid on the on the layer three level, and I can obviously see that people would obviously still pay their Ethereum contract fees. But then in between, I see that service is very very commoditized, and also based on the open source nature, if there is a really really good solution, I there's nothing that holds Ethereum back from integrating that solution into their stack as well. What needs to happen is that. That it's not just about scalability, like to be good in the layer two level, which is also a very competitive environment. You need to provide something extra in that regard as well. So if you can provide scalability with interoperability, then it becomes really, then it becomes way, way more interesting. And and even though interoperability is something that we don't talk about at the moment too much because we don't necessarily feel. The need for it because we're not at that level of use yet. I'm actually very bullish on the whole idea of interoperability, especially if it comes to maybe even something like a centrally banked digital currency and and these types of things. Eventually, these systems will need to talk to each other properly. Since you mentioned that, uh, you also mentioned Xstar already. Maybe Polkadot and so on. Which layer two applications are you the most bullish on, or which do you see the most uh, promising future for at the moment? Yeah, I, I would say the fact that from a developer point of view, and I also know from a company point of view, people have a big problem. They would rather pay more and know how much they need to pay for something than basically play on a fluctuating asset. So I think it's difficult for me to put a rubber stamp on something, and I don't necessarily like to kind of like between brackets, show a specific project. But based on the fact that XDAI uses a stable coin for its services, it is a major advantage compared to like needing to hold Ethereum, which fluctuates in value to, to corporations as well. Because even just having a token as a company to pay for a service is already problematic from an accounting perspective. Uh, absolutely. So... Maybe to wrap it up right now, if you had to put it together in maybe a couple of sentences, where do you see the DeFi space going within the next half year? I think the blue chips in the different aspects of DeFi have now basically shown their worth. They still have the scalability issue and probably the fee issue as well. But I can imagine that a few things are going to happen. Firstly, we are in a part, we're in an, um, a market sentiment level at the moment with Bitcoin, yeah? where Bitcoin is basically like bad news does not drag it down at the moment price-wise, and the market is reacting positively to, to, to positive news as well. And obviously institutional investors as uh, come, come together in that regard are also in that pot. 
And then as soon as there's a good run on, what you do see is that people basically ask like, well, okay, listen here, I've made some profit. I would like to go and put it into something else. And this profit is basically my risk capital where the previous amount that I kind of like maybe savings. So where are things that are interesting? And then I think the, the, the answer is still DeFi at the moment. I w- and then I would add probably data as well, because there's many interesting projects, not just in the storage space, but also with regards to kind of like, like accruing data and transferring it and processing it, which are also becoming more and more interesting. But I think that will be that will take quite a little bit more time because it, it's difficult to understand for people on on mass. So yeah, DeFi is DeFi. I think DeFi is still going to do well in the first and second quarter. Well, that sounds very good, of course. Yeah, I see it very much the same way. I think the next couple of months are going to be extremely interesting for DeFi as a whole for this technologically not very young space i mean it's the ideas for for the dao for dice for things like liquidity mining have been around of course since the beginning of blockchain but the fact that we really see rapid adoption is extremely interesting and uh, a lot of fun to see and to to keep coming back to and to see what communities are able to do with it yeah no definitely i and like as you also pointed out just now there is a critical mass of knowledgeable users There's two reasons for that. Firstly, the technology has been around for long enough. So a lot of people do understand it. Things like MetaMask as well, which basically just makes it so much easier to interact than it would, than it would have been before. With smart, interact with smart contracts and, and, and participate in them, which makes it a lot easier. So that's one aspect of it. But the level of knowledge of, of your average cryptocurrency or crypto asset participant in the market has gone up immensely. And one thing that I see in that regard, which is really much the case, is how bad or good news with regards to the token economics of a project gets priced into the market within half an hour. And that would usually have taken a week if it would actually have happened. So people are becoming a lot more savvy and that also pushes up the the level of the level of projects and what's what's needed. Absolutely. I think I've been saying since uh, 2015, at least, uh, that what's really holding the entire space back is um, usability. It's UX and UI, of course. And now when we look at the the newest iterations of the MetaMask app, for example, I mean, it looks beautiful, right? It's The interface is amazing. It looks like any other well-optimized and customer-centric and customer-focused application. It feels like everyone can really use it by now. And then, of course, with news like uh, the one from PayPal, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be some archaic interface with weird blockchain hash graphs presented everywhere if you want to interact with crypto assets via PayPal. It's going to be very, very easy to use like all of PayPal is. So I absolutely agree with you there that we're reaching more and more critical mass of uh, users that, first of all, of course, more knowledgeable and drive the space forward. But on the other hand, also more mainstream users that want to use it for the everyday business, for shopping, that want to use it, that want to use crypto assets simply because they're more convenient and the interface and the interaction is not the issue anymore. Yeah, that, that's very, very important because there is, like, as, like I used to work in e-commerce for a certain point as well. And it was always amazing to see how a small little friction point within a website with regards to any form of 
of selecting what you would like to buy or like to pay for it or register to pay for it or put in your address created a lot of drop-off in the sense of people would simply just decide, okay, I'm not interested anymore. So you would end up with a lot of abandoned carts. And it's exactly the same for this. You need to, the, the level of people are not just going to like struggle with bad with a bad user experience just because they're enthusiastic about crypto assets. There is just based on the fact that we're all used to very sleek smart smartphone applications, there is simply just this sub this very high minimum standard of uh, UX that you need to put in. And yeah, it, it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. Cool. Okay. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your insights. And I think our listeners too. It was really a cool talk. And we hope for our listeners, please stay tuned for the next episode of Untitled Investment Talk. All right. Thank you very much for having me. I, I really appreciated it. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much, but massive honor. Thanks a lot for the privilege, guys. The pleasure is all ours. Thanks for being here. And hopefully we see you again sometime. Yes, sir. Hopefully. <laughs> All the best. And uh, to our viewers, um, thank you for being with us, as Michael already said. And uh, we also definitely hope to see you again in the next recording of Untitled Investment Talk.